0: Hello. Good to see you. I am Lynn Kitchens. It's great to be here with you to continue looking into the Psalms. And who knew that prayers written that long ago would still apply to our lives? It's a wonderful thing. Psalm 85 is no exception to that. It's about restoration. Have you ever needed restoration? Yes we all have have you ever had a time when you smiled less and cried more and lacked enthusiasm when you lived out each day feeling just a little bit flat when God seemed far away (laughs) then I can say join the club there are so many people that feel that way every one of us in this room if you did have these things in your life you have things in common with Elijah and David in the Old Testament. You have things in common with people in the New Testament, including the disciples. You know, I was thinking about this for my life, and um, I was remembering when I was involved in Young Life Leadership, and I was in college. And, you know, our Young Life leader, he just thought every weekend we needed a retreat away. (laughs) So we'd go and get in this old van and take off. And I can remember the time that he said okay we're gonna have a leadership retreat this weekend and I said you know I don't want to go and I went to all of them and it was sort of a weird thing to hear myself say that it was weird for my young life leader to hear that and that's when I thought I just I'm not feeling it I'm I don't feel close to God I don't really feel like I have a lot of energy so, when my young life leader came back into town, he took me to this park near my house, and we just walked around and talked about it. And we walked around a lake. I remember that real well. I don't remember anything we said, <laughs> but I guess I got restored because here I am. <laughs> 20 years later, just 20, no. And, you know, I know I've had times I've needed restoration since then. I read about a man named Robert Robinson from 18th century London who needed restoration. He found himself one day standing on a street in London hearing the horses and the carriages go by and listening to church bells ringing. And it it conflicted his heart because at one time he had a really strong faith. He had a really living, vibrant faith. And he was involved in the church and in many other spiritual endeavors. But here he was standing, feeling confused on a street in London. He decided to catch a cab. The cab pulled up in the little horse and carriage cab... But there was a woman in there all dressed up to go to church. So he just said, oh, that's okay. And she said, no, no, come up. And he sat down. Sure enough, as soon as it started going, she said, are you going to church? And he was like, he was, felt too awkward to say no. So he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> then she asked him his name. And he said, Robert Robinson. And she got this puzzled look and took out this little hymn book she had a book with different hymns in it and said you know there's a hymnist named Robert Robinson and I was just reading some of his things here and she opened up and handed it to him and he looked at it and read it and said you know I wrote this hymn 22 years ago and she just stared at him and was so excited that he was in the cab with her and started talking to him but he had his eyes down he was reading his hymn. And it started out, come thou fount of every blessing. And then he read the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And he told the woman, I wrote those words, and now I'm living those words. And she said, but look what you wrote at the end of the hymn. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. And from that point on, he really began a journey back to God. That verse became true in his life. Robert Robinson, and he was restored. That's what God loves to do for us. And today's psalm, Israel's needing restoration. And there's a few different reasons. It's very possible the psalm was written after Israel was returning from being captives in Babylon. We've talked about that. And it may have been that they experienced initial joy and renewal. Israel weren't what they used to be. And things may have become disheartening even when they were rebuilding the temple. So look what Ezra 3 says about that time on your verse sheet. And Israel sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. One man's interpretation of Psalm 85 said this, all the excellent beginnings and all of the high and holy aspirations soon deteriorated and the eager movement of restoration was completely stalled. In other words, this is a psalm in which a very hopeful situation failed and the people were driven to prayer that God might bring their hopes to pass. So here's some other possibilities. Spurgeon believes that David, King David, wrote this song when they were constantly being persecuted by the Philistines. David's remembering God's past faithfulness, and he's asking the people to pray with him again for it. Um, Calvin believes that this was written... Because of the persecution of Antiochus. This was a, an evil king that uh, Daniel prophesied about. He came 350 years after Daniel prophesied. Some believe this was written just during a time of religious awakening for Israel, a time of national repentance. But what's the most important thing to remember here is this Person, this psalmist understood that Israel had a special relationship with God. They had a covenant with God. God had plans. God had promises with this nation. And because he knew this to be true, he acknowledges God's past mercies with Israel. And then he requests boldly new mercies for Israel. And then he envisions in the future more mercies. For Israel from God and we can remember what's true for Israel is true for us. There are times we need restoration but because God has promises he's given us. He has plans he's given us. We can look back at his past mercies. We can go to him in prayer for new mercies and we can envision many future mercies that he has for us. We can expect God To make a way in our wilderness. We can expect God to put rivers into our deserts. This is what he did for Israel as they were leaving Babylon. This was his promise to them. This is what he did. Look on your verse sheet, Isaiah 41. Oh, up at your outline. I lied. Look at that verse. It's great. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Both Israel and all of us, every believer, knows what it means to suffer some distance from God and then to be led back into his presence, holding hands with God as we leave our Babylon behind and we go forward into the freedom that he wants us to have. It's because we belong to him. He's going to do new things. And because he has plans for us. So we can trust that when we're suffering, he is a God who wants to restore us. Uh, Many years ago, Ted and I owned a little piece of property in Comanche, Texas. And we would go there to camp out and run away from the rattlesnakes that surrounded us, but for Ted it was the funnest thing in the world, I just kind of went along with it. Uh, There was a windmill fence of this little property and it didn't work and it always bothered Ted that he wanted to see that windmill working and so he would ask around the little town of Comanche, who can fix a windmill? So one day, he went in this dry goods store and asked the cashier, do you know anybody who would fix a windmill? She said, you ought to go talk to those men that are just sitting on stools at the back of the room here. (laughs) So Ted went back, and sure enough, there was an older man on a stool he had on his overalls. His name was Dee Wilson. And Ted said, can you fix a windmill? And he said, why don't you take me out to it? I'll look at it. So Ted took Dee Wilson out to the property, they looked at the windmill, and then Ted said, I mean, D. Wilson said to Ted, okay, go around to the corner and look underneath that little northeast corner of that windmill, and Ted looked under there and saw the name engraved, D. Wilson. (laughs) And so needless to say, D. Wilson fixed that windmill (laughs) because he built the windmill. When we're broken, God knows how to restore us because he created us. His name is engraved on our hearts. That's his job. Let's begin this Psalm 85.1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. I love how this psalm starts because the psalmist is showing this great discipline when he wrote these words. This is a discipline we say often that we need to practice. As he suffers, he remembers. When we're suffering, we remember. Our present afflictions should never drown out the mercies of God's work in our lives in the past. In the midst of current suffering, the psalmist wisely remembers God's past kindness. Here's what he remembers. He recognizes that God has shown great favor and God's restoration of the nation of Israel. And I, when you think about the nation of Israel, really, the favor of God is the complete identity of the nation of Israel. That's who they were, a nation loved by God and made by God. In fact, the psalmist calls Israel Jacob here because he's thinking way back in the past to Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and looking at the faithfulness of God from that time on. Look at Isaiah 41. "'But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend,' you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. So the psalmist knew that the promise of land was also pointing to God's favor. He glances back in this verse 1 to the deliverance of his people from Egypt, which was the first step in settling that land of promise. But, you know, depending on when this psalm was written, many other deliverances did God do for Israel throughout their history even by calling God Jehovah here as he does in verse 1 that's the personal name of God I think the psalmist may have been thinking when when God first gave his personal name to Moses remember at that time Jacob's tribes were in bondage in in Egypt and God knew it God had his eye on them from the beginning. He also knew about their bondage later in Babylon. But the psalmist is saying, your favor never left us. You do have a covenant with us. The promise of land, blessings, descendants, and you will bring it to pass. Look at the next verse in Isaiah 41.10. God said, fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he did that. He rescued Israel from all their enemies. He restored them to their liberty and to their spiritual future. No longer were they strangers in a strange land. Now, you know what this nation was known as? The residence of the people Of the one Jehovah God. The nation of Israel. And this psalmist understood this is the favor of God. This is the restoration of God. And he knew it because he was living in it when he wrote this psalm. And looking around at what God had done for them. Now the people are suffering, so he is praying. Some people call this the prayer of a patriot. Because he's praying for this nation that God loves and the people that are afflicted within it. He wants revival for them. So he's going to talk more about the past. We're going to see what brought about the revival of Israel. The answer, the forgiveness of God. Look at verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So in the past, and very often, God forgave Israel's sins. And here's what it looked like. A covering. A covering of Israel's sin. Meaning that Israel was in this state of moral nakedness. And God put his forgiveness over them like a cover. Just as he covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden... With animal skins after they had disobeyed him. At this point, if you look down at your psalm, you're gonna see the word to the right that says um, silah. This means take a meditative pause in the song right here because there's a stirring truth. Wow, that is a stirring truth. The writer has to catch his breath as he thinks about the great depth of Israel's sin and the great forgiveness of God over and over and over again. It made me think of, uh, we sang Amazing Grace today that John Newton wrote. I love his favorite quote. You know, he went from a, a violent slave trader to a pastor. And yet if you tried to make him say anything good about himself... Thousands of people would come here and preach. His favorite line was, all I know is I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's taking your breath. That's pausing and seeing what God's done in your life. This psalmist also pauses in thankfulness here, reminding us, never take it lightly that you and I wear the righteous robe of God. We are wrapped. In his undeserving love and mercy, it covers our sins. His righteousness covers our sins. Look at Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And 2 Corinthians, for our sake... God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What else does forgiveness look like? This verse explains that when God takes away sin, his anger also is taken away. And I started thinking, is that true for us? Sometimes I forgive people, but I still want to hold on to my anger about that does not happen with God. This verse tells us there is a withdrawal and a turning of God's wrath and anger once we're forgiven. God is pacified when we are purified. And it's done. You know, we do like to often compare God's anger with our anger. It's nothing like it. Our anger is usually kind of an emotional, uncontrollable outburst. And I like that John MacArthur calls it god's anger a judicial outrage it's just a reaction of holiness meeting up with sin holiness meeting up with ungodliness spurgeon says though even when israel's judgments had been very severe the lord had in mercy stayed his hand in mid-volley he had restrained his thunder against israel God's forgiveness ended his wrath and initiated the restoration of the nation of Israel. So we see in verses one through three, Israel was first called, then Israel was cleansed. We are too, so when we feel far from God, we can seek God again by performing a sila. Remembering, pausing, meditating, remembering who we really are, remembering God is our loving Father. He has given us his favor, and he has freed us because of his forgiveness of our sins. To be restored, we first have to reflect on that gracious calling and that cleansing from God. Look at Titus 2. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. That's our calling for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Okay, the writer has remembered, and now he's going to request... And he's using God's past favor as sort of this divine platform to begin asking God what he needs to ask him. Look at verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. So we know that restorations can be long, they can be lasting, but some restorations get weak and eventually can collapse and need renewal. Israel needed renewal. And so the past mercies of God are his inspiration to keep praying. If we look at the psalm as being written after Israel returned from Babylon, then it could mean that 20 years or so have gone by before this psalm was written. Uh, Israel did experience some restoration at that time of Haggai and Zechariah, even though much of their land was still in ruins at that time. And I think that ruin is a picture we can have of where Israel is, the state they are in right now. And I think, how did that happen? Well, if you've read anything about the nation of Israel, you're going to remember that they often brought a lot of their hardships down on themselves from turning their back on God, from worshiping other gods, from ignoring God's commands. But this psalmist has hope. He believed God could respond to their humble pleas again. He knows one thing, that God doesn't change the principle of his actions. And wouldn't that be horrible if God did? But he doesn't. And he understands God is still the God of their salvation, meaning that he knows only God can fix this. We can't. No false gods can Only God, he's our salvation in this situation and for all our nation. Israel understands God alone can bring revival into their fallen state. They have been doing things their own way and not finding any success with it. That's why they were in ruins. They were in that awful place that we find ourselves in when God's voice seems to get weaker and weaker because we are becoming deaf to what he desires of us. And it's not a good place to be. In fact, the psalmist says, it feels like it's going to last forever. Are you going to be angry with us forever? Will the next generation be punished? I read this quote I thought was good. A short moment of the frowning brow seems a very long time to the sufferer who is enduring it. It feels even longer than it might really be. The prayer here is for revival. Quicken us again. And there is faith in this plea. And he's saying, and when you do, Lord, we're to rejoice in you again that's what we want to do we will be glad again when Israel's soul is wakened by God they're going to find their joy in God and shouldn't that just be a natural response to revival we look and rejoice in the one who's brought that about in our life this psalmist though is very bold and he also asks something of God show us He wants the reality of God's love to be as obvious as the reality of their pain. He wanted to experience the wonders of God's love again that have seemed to just fade away. And though they're pretty blind right now, he knows you can show us. You can make yourself plain to us. That's what he's asking them. And because God never changes, he can do that. He's in the business of restoration, So you and I can look around sometimes at the ruins in our lives, ruins we've often built, and he's always waiting to hear from us. He loves us to be restored. We leave our ruins behind, and we ask God to rebuild our lives, giving up the foolish plans that we had. It's something he loves to do. And this also means we don't expect someone (laughs) Or something else to do it for us. Nobody can. Nothing can. Only God can. So the writer of this hymn has taken his prayer to God. He has no doubt that God is going to answer his prayer. Look at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints but not, let them not turn back to folly. And I can almost envisioning the psalmist here. He's prayed, he's let his request be made, and now he's doing this. What are you going to tell us? We are your saints, meaning we have been graced by you. What are you going to do next? I'm listening. What he wants to hear is peace. That's his hope. Peace takes the place of enmity against God. But for peace to come, the enmity must leave. That enmity, I think here, is described as folly. And on many occasions in the past, Israel quickly turned to folly instead of turning to God. And it's easy for us to have the best of intentions, but to watch our passion for God slowly dying away as we turn away from him. His desire is that our spiritual life never begins to weaken. It should grow. It should not be evaporating. It should not be disappearing. It should not be growing dormant just because we're negligent in our walk with him. This psalmist will call that spiritual folly. And when folly comes... Peace leaves. Those who run to God and run away from folly are people of peace. Look at Psalm 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. That's what would be the result when Israel turned from their folly and turned to God. Let's look at verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So I think the psalmist is leaning in again. He's listening to the words of God's salvation. He's wanting that salvation to save them from the state they are in. He knows it's near to everyone who fears God, meaning everyone who bows to the will of God in all hope and faith and love. He knows that where the fear of God exists, God's glory also exists. So as Israel fears God, he believes his glory will return into this afflicted land and bring abundance and bring joy. For God's glory to dwell in the land means that Israel would be God's constant abode. Wow, that will be something that will happen for Israel as a nation for all eternity when Christ rules in the millennial kingdom. But it happens to us the moment we bow our will to God. At the moment of our salvation, the presence of God invades our afflicted life and comes to dwell and make a home in our heart forever. He's always there. We can grieve his spirit, but he's always there. When we grieve his spirit, it may feel like he's not. We only have to turn back to him to be restored and find that abundance again, find that joy again. Look at Ephesians 3. of God. So to be restored, we bow our will to God's will, and we will reap the fruit of his indwelling in our hearts. I love those last few words there. We will be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that's a great definition for restoration, to be filled with the fullness of God. Okay, let's look at verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. I love this. The psalmist really knows who God is. He knows what God's kingdom is going to look like. He knows his kingdom looks like love and faithfulness. It looks like righteousness and peace. And these attributes all together surround the salvation that is God. And this is what the kingdom would look like. These are the works of our Redeemer, who is also our sanctifier. God's love is the most moving cause of salvation. And it's connected with faithfulness, the means of our salvation righteousness is the robe that our redeemer wears and results in the peace that our sanctifier brings us these qualities this psalmist is reminding us they come from above they bless us below and so here the writer's really connecting the salvation of the land of israel along with the people of israel you know If you've gone to Israel ever, you'll probably know what I've seen is you can almost see the border of Israel. Um, you can almost tell because it's green, it's productive, there's lots of sunflowers in the land, etc. And then when the borders end, you look out and it's sort of brown and rocky and unproductive. It reminded me even of the difference in the town I grew up with with the towns around us. We were this little Dutch Reformed town, there was a church on every corner. You could be in church, and people, Tried to follow God. We didn't all do it very well. But that was the plan for this town. There weren't even any liquor stores allowed in our town. So you could be in our town with the greenery and the parks and all these great things and step over into the next town, and it wasn't the same. It wasn't as beautiful. It wasn't as productive. It wasn't as healthy. He's saying here, you know, a productive land will come Because of the attributes of God. And we'll see that in the future kingdom of Christ as well. The psalmist envisions God's faithfulness springing up from the earth. They're like buried seeds that are coming up. God's faithfulness. And they have promises. They yield fruit, and they're watered from God's righteousness, which comes from above. It's like a righteous rain. And so the psalmist is envisioning, and he says, You know, blessings await us as your attributes envelop our hearts and envelop our land. Look at the last verse. Righteousness will go before him, And make his footsteps away. And so what we realize here is, you know, once God does restore Israel again, what will keep them from becoming spiritually complacent again? From chasing folly again? And this is the answer. The righteousness of God will march before Israel, making a path for them that they can follow. He's our divine guide. We don't have to try to do life without him. I can almost picture from this phrase, you know, God walking ahead of them saying, hey, follow me. Peace is over here. Joy over here. Abundance. Follow this bright path of my righteousness. Walk this way. And like any good father... God wants to walk with children that come to him in humility, children that are teachable. When God's children desire the holy path their father is on, good things will happen. Our heavenly father's path is a path that goes to glory, goes to his wisdom. And when we set our feet on that path, when we've chosen to do that, wow. The fruit that we can pick on that path to change our lives. First, though, we have to recognize that our path is a dead end path. The plans we've made, the foolish things we're doing, it's a dead end path, a path to nowhere good. You know, have you guys ever done those mazes where you do a walking human maze and you walk around? They're just horrible. So if you haven't done one, Don't do one because there's a dead end like every time you turn around. Now, the fun thing to do is to get above them and laugh at all the people (laughs) as they get to those dead ends. What a great name for our path that it has a dead end. We got to be on God's path to be restored. We walk away from ours. We commit to putting our feet on the path of God. It's a righteous path. Okay, when do we do this? Every day. But my sins are too great. God wants to restore you. I don't have any passion for God. God wants to restore you. I feel confused about so many things. God wants to restore you. I feel worthless. God wants to restore you. And God can restore you. And when he does, you'll want to thank him. And you may do a little dance according to this last verse. (laughs) Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let me pray. Lord, you are good. How many follies we commit that you're willing for us to turn away from, and you are waiting to embrace us again. I just pray that all of us in this room would just make it a discipline to turn, to turn, to turn, to stay on your path, to get to experience all the great plans and promises you have for us. We thank you for the God that you are. We give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.